Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live, Cape Cod Times Live Facebook news broadcast. Every Thursday, we come to you at 9 a.m. from the newsroom here at the Cape Cod Times. I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy. I'm joined this week by our courts reporter, Wheeler uh, Copperthwaite. I can't believe you've been here so long and I still can't pronounce your name. My last uh, job, I was there for five years and they still couldn't pronounce my we'll, name. So. We'll get it in another five years. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Um, we'll talk about a few court-related stories uh, that you've been covering, including a bid for a new trial uh, for a man who uh, was convicted in the killing of a fellow member of the Coast Guard back in 2015. It was a very dramatic story at the time uh, uh, Fiery Rampage is a very appropriate way to talk about what happened then. Um, and a hearing on the nomination of a Barnesville District Court judge to the State Appeals Court uh, that you attended yesterday, as a matter of fact. We'll also talk about a potential bid by the town of Wellfleet to buy more than 200 acres of uh, title flats. Um, and as a potential bid, they're gonna, they were talking about it today, later on today, as a matter of fact. And uh, some more contention at the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe. tribe. Uh, finally, we'll take a brief look ahead at a story coming about um, the always controversial use of herbicides on utility rights away here on the Cape. You can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at capecottimes.com and on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, Wheeler, this story uh, that's in uh, today's paper, I believe, uh, about uh, the governor's council looking at a Barnstable judge uh, for the state appeals court, second highest court in the state. Um, you were there. Uh, who who was this and what were they talking about? So, um, uh, so it's District Judge Catherine Hand. She's also the Regional Administrative Justice for Region 1, which includes all of Cape Cod, the islands, and a lot of Southeast Massachusetts. So we're talking Plymouth over to Wareham and Fall River. Um, so she's been a judge for 13 years. She was originally appointed by Romney in 2006. Um, I don't know, but I think I printed the story out. But um, so she's... So she was in there, and um, I don't. So it wasn't actually a vote on her. They were just having the hearing, yeah. and um, and this is a system you've looked at recently yes, in terms of how these hearings work. This is the governor's council. They are uh, elected officials. So they are they are eight elected officials, and their purpose is to do advice and consent, which really means an up or down vote on candidates um, that the governor has nominated, and. Although can hand is by all accounts the most qualified candidate, we don't know who else applied or who else was qualified. Uh, and I wrote about that for Sunshine Week sure. uh, last week, and and <clears throat> um, I mentioned Hand in my lead, I think, about yeah. how you know she's been nominated, but we don't know who else was there. But um, it was interesting because during the hearing, it wasn't so much about Hand's qualifications, and I think that everybody agrees that Hand is qualified, and that mm -hmm. she and people I've talked to on and off the record, everybody said she's a very qualified candidate. Mm -hmm. She's probably going to be a great appeals court judge, and the district court's going to be poor without her, and it's going to be hard to fill her shoes. I've heard that um, from a lot of people. Yep. Yeah, um, but. Uh, Oh, what was my point? The hearing wasn't necessarily oh, yeah, the, the as hearing, much about her hearing, qualifications. You know, and, and a lot of it was 
um, these counselors, who most of them are attorneys, a couple of them are defense attorneys um, or civil attorneys, uh, essentially airing their grievances about the, the lower court, about how district court judges are, assent- you know, uh, Jenny Cassie Canini, uh, she was complaining, actually her and Terrence Kennedy both went on the same issue about harassment orders, which I thought was really interesting. Because her problem, uh, her problem was that judges are not, um, they, the, the judges don't necessarily allow cross-examination during harassment orders, which if you can imagine has a big effect. If you own a gun and someone get, you get a, a restraining order or harassment order against you, you could potentially have your right to carry a gun in Massachusetts taken away. And these are these are restraining orders that we're talking about, what everybody knows is temporary restraining orders, things of that nature. Although they can be extended to be yep. permanent. Yep. Um, and, and also harassment orders. So there's you know two different types of yep. of orders they call them harassment and restraining but they do the same thing they say Mm -hmm. that you can't contact the person you can't do this and terrence kennedy kind of brought the point home and was making the point that you know the the judges are issuing these orders for what are essentially neighborly disputes you know you parked too close to my my uh my driveway and now i'm going to call the cops on you and then the cops come and say this is a civil dispute we're not getting in the middle of this go get a restraining order against your neighbor and he was saying the judges are issuing these when they shouldn't be and that it's taking so people's liberties So issuing them away. too easily and, and taking, you know, taking people's liberties away, it goes on the record then as exactly. a restraining order has been issued against you. That could come up at a certain point. It's come up in our research of looking at different people. We say, oh, are there any restraining orders in this case? Well, and I, and I think I recently wrote about a um, – a restraining order case that was dealt with by the appeals court and the gentleman who was not named in it. His complaint was the restraining order, which was a domestic violence related one, uh, against him was preventing him from being able to do his job in a different state because he was contracted to service um, government facility, I think U.S. government facilities, think like a prison, and he was not allowed to go on to the prison because he had a restraining order. And this on his was record. from many years previously. Yes, his argument yes. was that it was many years old and from something that was from a long time ago. They also yeah. talked about dangerousness, and that that's become uh, a big deal in the last year or so, based on several cases, including uh, um, some local cases. And the governor right now uh, is uh, pushing for a, a new dangerousness bill, and we'll we'll take a look at that going forward. But the the governor's council was very interested in that. Uh, as well, and and even saying that they they thought I think in that case that uh, I think the quote was too many people are going to jail, which is somewhat counter to the general public uh, opinion we've been hearing. Again, much of which maybe the most vocal part of which has been that you know people who are dangerous should be put away, should be put away forever. I mean, the public in a lot of ways doesn't necessarily line up with how people who are very involved in the judiciary do in terms of the the taking away of public liberties. They the public can be very harsh in terms of, of how they feel some people should be dealt with. But some of these counselors seem to indicate that in some cases, dangerousness uh, was being used too, again, too freely. I think Terrence Kennedy, and I didn't necessarily put this quote in my story, but he said that, uh, you know, essentially the prosecutors are asking for dangerousness hearings to, quote, cover their asses, unquote, mm. so that... Um, so that they don't, you know, so that when some the judge does release someone because they don't have something enough evidence, happens after that. something happens, yep. they can say, oh, you know, we asked for a dangerousness and it's the judge's fault for yep. not granting it. And I, I think that it's interesting because a lot of the other critics have said, and these are law enforcement sources who are telling me this, you know, what is the point of having, you know, we're going to have dangerousness. It only lasts for 120 days. Does someone magically become less dangerous after 120 days? I mean, dangerousness 
you know, is a, is a state of being, not necessarily something that, you know, evaporates with time or cools down or anything like that. Well, it's, it's an interesting debate, and I'm, there, there are a lot of uh, questions about where that debate's going to go. Uh, going back to the, the stories or origination oh, here, hand, hand uh, now, now what happens, I guess, in terms of her nomination? They asked her about a lot of this. She yeah, was and, and so she gave very, very some, politic, yeah, you know, she... Yeah. I was listening to her answers. It's like, oh my gosh, someone should write these down because this is just what you should just give every time. You know, very, you know, I will follow the law. Yeah, which which reminds me of some of the Supreme uh, Court hearings where they're asking people about things, and the judges are very careful when they're in these situations because they don't want to say something that then somebody could point to later and say they made up their mind about that that decision that they later made ahead of time. They already had their mind made up, which a judge is not supposed to do. A judge is supposed to take all you know cases in individually, line it up with precedent, line it up with the law, and then decide versus having and already exactly. Made and that's a lot of the points that hand me is that you know my personal opinion is separate from what the law is and my job is to uphold the law and to interpret the law mm -hmm. not to give my personal opinion and yep. so she was asked about gun rights and and abortion and a couple other things and you know she said i have a personal opinion about it but my personal opinion has nothing to do with the application Doesn't of the law and so, so what happens next so next i think next week they're gonna have a vote on her and um after that she'll probably you know i'm you know i don't have a crystal ball but a, from what I saw and what I've, everyone I've talked to, I think that she'll be confirmed. Everyone was very, very, you know, just just overwhelmingly positive mm -hmm. towards mm -hmm. her uh, during the meeting. And also, I mean, if you look at the record, almost every single candidate has been approved by the governor's council. And, and I again, think that in my past Sunshine Week story, I think I went to what, 113 or something have been, you know, approved without issue. Yep. And, and almost none have been yep. disapproved. And yep. then we can talk about you know, Jennifer Roberts was the one that was pulled before she could be disapproved. So, yep. But, but, but again, in this case, uh, uh, I guess in the void of any other information about other candidates, she does seem to be highly qualified. That's across the board, defense attorneys, prosecutors, ju other judges, former judges. Um, everybody seems to be very uh, positive about her qualifications. 100%. So uh, we'll see what happens, but it's probably pretty clear what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. um, well, and then, we're, and so, the, so going forward, we're then going to be down one Barnstable District Court judge. Yep. I do not know how that's going to affect the the operations of the court. Always, they'll probably have to bring in another yep. judge to yep. pick up the slack because it's a pretty busy court. Yep. And then it's going it's undetermined how long that's going to take. Again, it's a secret system, so we can't know what's going to go on. But the people who have already applied for other district court judgeships, especially if they're Cape Cod people, um, their applications will stay active, so they can then be considered for the next opening which yeah. even if they weren't nominated for yeah. current ones. Um so it will we'll follow that along because obviously the judges in our uh region are are of great import to people who end up in the court system or have any dealings with the court system. Um uh story here uh out of Wellfleet uh by Marianne Bragg, um the front page of today's story. This one's interesting and does have some legal uh involvement as well. Um the town of Wellfleet is looking at and select the select board today will be considering whether to put something uh and I don't know if they're gonna make a decision today, but they don't have much time to put it to uh, voters at the April 22nd town meeting to buy more than 200 acres of title flats in South Wellfleet. Unusual uh, to for a town to be in this position or for anybody in a, a position to buy title flats. You, It's hard to say what you can really do with the title flats other than, you know, the, the grants, shellfish grants that are there, and there are a lot of them on this particular property, um, uh, will continue as grants. They aren't sold or, or bought as part of the land sale beneath them. Um, but 
but there is concern about what somebody, you know, who might buy it, whether there could be any implications for the land going forward. So uh, members of the uh, shell fishing community, the commercial shell fishing community had approached um, uh, town officials and asked them to consider this uh, purchase. It's not, not cheap, especially for land that you really can't build a house on $3.4 million um, uh, for the 219 acres that they're considering. There's another 35 acres that would re remain with this trust that owns it. But the back uh, um, legal story here which is all in Marianne's uh, story, and you can certainly read through it, uh, is pretty interesting because it goes back to a case in 1996. There was a landowner nearby who uh, didn't like the basically the fact that there were shell fishermen out on that those that title flats, and he sued. It went all the way to the appeals court. Um, he had he had lost and then appealed uh, the the uh, his loss. Uh, as that happened, a few shell fishermen dropped off from the case. Um, but the ones that remained, there, uh, one of their attorneys, essentially their attorney, went and did some research and he figured out that the, the title flats weren't really owned by the, the people shoreward, the landowners shoreward. Um, and he found the uh, heirs of a corporation that had since dissolved. And he basically said, well, our guys want to buy that from you. And so they bought the land. And as the you know homeowner was appealing uh, this process, the land was bought basically right out from not under him, but but the, uh, from out of the the case, and so these people went on to um, continue to shellfish. It's, it's a, a lot of people shellfish out there. One of the nice things about it, according to um, select board member Helen Miranda, is that it's not the black mayonnaise which people talk about in in a lot of Wellfleet Harbor, which is a really a bad situation for shellfish for the for the environment. Um, this is a, a more pristine area, um, and uh, therefore the town, you know, has probably some concern in making sure that their uh, commercial shellfishing community, which is a large part of Wellfleet, you think about Wellfleet, you think about oysters, um, continues to be able to use this land. In any case, select board is going to be talking about that today. Town's finance committee uh, uh, looks like they're going to take it up on March 27th, and they kind of advise uh, you know town meeting as to what their uh, opinion is on on financial warrant articles, and we'll see where it goes. Um, but I mean, it's a pretty hefty price tag, isn't it? 3.4 million dollars, and again, again, 219 acres, 3.4 yeah. sounds great, except that it's title flats. Yeah. So there's again, you can't go out and build on the title flats the way you could on you know two point or uh, 219 acres of actual land uh, dry land if you will um uh so so again the town's going to have to consider that uh, there was a recent uh, land purchase that the town uh, put before uh, town meeting. Town meeting had voted on it and needed to vote on it again in an election. In the meantime, somebody had bought that property, um, and then I think they were they were looking to even sell it to the town after that. So mm. the town's looking at this and saying, we really need to maybe, if we're going to go forward with this, have a purchase and sale agreement in place so we don't get you know it scooped out from underneath us as we go through the the process that that governments have to go through in order to get. Uh, uh, um, their uh, constituents on board. Um, uh, this Mashpee Tribe story, the latest uh, that was um, in uh, the paper uh, today, again, um, there was an expulsion hearing planned. There were expulsion hearings planned for several tribe members. And uh, again, Tanner Stenning's been covering this uh, as much as we possibly can because the tribe is a sovereign government and has its own uh, set of rules. Another Sunshine Week story, as you mentioned yours, um, uh, that Tanner did looking at how tribal governments handle open meeting law, public records laws. Um, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe really don't have something in place for their tribe members uh, to uh, 
kind of legally go after documents and things of that. Um, but they do have open meetings for tribe members. They're not open to the general public. They're open for tribe members only um, in, in general. And uh, one of those took place um, uh, on uh, Tuesday, uh, and it was a, an expulsion hearing for somebody who's on the tribal council. There are three members of the tribal council who are facing these expulsion hearings based on various charges, a lot of which have, the, have to do with, um, it sounds like them being vocal uh, about their concerns about how the tribe is handling different things. Um, one of them is a little more clear. We've, we've spoken to uh, a couple of these uh, tribal council members, the third uh, has not spoken to us. Um, but this hearing that took place on Tuesday essentially devolved into a pretty chaotic situation where tribe members showed up and they, they basically uh, were there and the tribal council chairman wanted to go into executive session to deal with this uh, expulsion hearing essentially and the tribe members who were there according to sources who were there and spoke to um, Tanner said, we're not leaving. We're not, we're not going to let you go into executive session, uh, you know, basically do this behind closed doors. And so they had to essentially put off this uh, vote. Tribe members were quoted uh, uh, by Tanner saying they're taking away our vote because um, the person who was up for this expulsion hearing, Carlton Hendricks, had just been elected and I think had received um, uh, maybe even the most votes uh, uh, as part of that election, but he was in a sense uh, recently elected. So um, tribe members were saying, we, we voted him into office and now you're going to uh, take him out of office. They didn't, they didn't like that. That didn't sit well with them. So in any case, again, we're following this as best we can uh, and trying to keep, you know, our readers informed, some of whom are, are certainly tribe members, but it's also something that has ramifications for the whole community. The tribe is pursuing a billion dollar casino in Taunton. Um, they're running into some serious headwinds there. There was a, a lawsuit that was filed successfully uh, to basically block their um, rights to reservation land. Without that reservation land, they really can't pursue this casino. Um, and they've already gone, you know, spent uh, via a, a developer who's, who's backing them upwards of $500 million on this uh, plan. So the, the town of Mashpee, Cape, the southeast region of Massachusetts, there's a lot in play here and we'll see how it turns out. But obviously internally the tribe's having some issues. There are some uh, of these expulsion hearings for the other tribe members that are supposed to take place, I think today and tomorrow. Um, we'll try and follow along as best we can. And certainly uh, we're only good as, the inf as good as the information we can get. Uh, so certainly when people share uh, with us, it's uh, we think good for the public and in this case, the tribe to know what's going on. I think that was part of this as well. The tribe uh, members who showed up felt like they were you know, blindsided by this a little bit. We had done some reporting on it, but it's not exactly clear how uh, much information was disseminated by the tribe. Well, and, and I th find it certainly interesting that, you know, the three executive session items were to deal with, quote, council member issues, unquote. Yes, which, doesn't know. sound very clear. It it's not very specific in, in the open meeting law that we know in, in uh, municipal, uh, state, federal government. Um, or at least in state government, it has to be very clear what you're talking about. Yeah, usually you have usually the standard is, is some type of reasonable specificity. Yep, yep. That is to say, you don't have to say we're going to talk about you know so and so because they did X Y Z, but you do have to say we're going to talk about so and so. Yes, and 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 again, obviously the tribe uh, certainly would argue that listen, this isn't you know, municipal government, this isn't state government, this is the tribal government, we're sovereign, we can make our own rules to a to a degree. Um, and there's a, you know, a long running, you know, discussion about, again, tribe sovereign rights. 
again, it's when there's this nexus of, of the tribe and, and people in the uh, larger world or even the tribe leadership and tribe members who are trying to get information. And there have been tribe members who have sued to try and get information. And when they sued in state government, in state courts here in Massachusetts, essentially the answer from the state courts was, hey, we, don't, we can't control you know, your access to that information because they're a sovereign government. So there is that, that uh, kind of roadblock that even tribe members run into. Well, and, and, and although the tribe might say they're a sovereign nation, certainly, you know, you can argue as a tribal member that the issue of having reasonable specificity in your open meetings laws isn't a, a matter of sovereignty. It's an issue of good government. Yeah, and the first thing is they need open meeting laws, which I, I think that's, that's one of the issues. There's a constitution, and the, but the, as far as, in, and again, Tanner talked about this in the Sunshine Week story in terms of open meeting law, and public records law. I think there was an effort to do something along the lines of public records law several years ago, and it, it didn't go anywhere for the tribe. So again, even tribe members, yes, you know, they, they they might expect that, and that might be a good thing to have that specificity. But there's nothing. It sounds like forcing the tribe council to do that. But we'll see. Maybe that'll change in the future. Um, uh, uh, big story for several years, and, and certainly at the time it was a big story. I can still remember being woken up at two o'clock in the morning uh, when this was happening in real time, hearing you know over the phone uh, gunshots uh, as a reporter was covering uh, the scene here. Uh, 2015, Adrian Loya um, uh, had essentially uh, went in with uh, camera and firearms and lit a car on fire in Bourne, uh, killed uh, one fellow Coast Guard member and injured another. Um, although I think in that case he wasn't convicted of, of um, uh, I think it was assault and battery to murder uh, the second person, I, if I remember correctly, and shot a uh, born police officer in the process. Um, Who then went into a medical retirement. Went into a medical retirement. And you, you, you're covering now this week uh, a bid for a new trial. And what's the, what's the bid here? So, so you know, he was convicted of first-degree murder, and so he gets an automatic appeal. And so we have been waiting since his conviction in 2017 um, for the, the appeal to be filed. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say boo-hoo on the attorney. You know, you, the appellate attorney, it, it takes a long, you know, there's a lot of time of the appellate attorney has to go over. Because remember that the appellate attorney and the trial attorney are almost always two separate people. So you have to have a separate attorney who comes in who did not attend the trial and who looks over every single thing that was done over the entire course of the pre-trial motions, all, everything that was filed, and then over the entire trial. And he's looking at every single objection that the attorney in this, in the trial attorney in this case, Drew Segadelli, made. So he was looking and he came up with two issues that he wanted to appeal on. And, and they're almost one issue, but two issues, it's a little bit. So basically he took, um, a, he took issue with the verdict slips that the jury was given. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so Drew Segadelli had filed two motions. One motion was to have yes or no answers and to eliminate the words guilty and not guilty from the uh, slips. And the issue, and the reason is because his defense was essentially the insanity defense. Um, in Massachusetts, we call that criminal responsibility, but, you know, if we were to talk about, the, if we were on, you know, CNN, we would be talking about the insanity defense mm -hmm. because that's what it is. You're saying that the person did something but does not have a criminal responsibility for what they did. If we were on CNN, we'd also have breaking news right oh, down God, here on the bar. Sorry, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'd have a, we'd have a person doing graphics for yeah, us exactly. right now. Um, and so uh, he, so he challenged 
So Elliott filed two motions. The first motion was to eliminate guilty and not guilty from the verdict slips and instead have, did the, I don't have the exact wording in front of me, but it was along the lines of, did the prosecution um, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, you know, Adrian Loya, you know, did X, Y, Z um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And then also did they prove that he was, and then it's the, the, there's jury instructions that define criminal responsibility mm -hmm. and it's, the jury instruction definition of criminal responsibility beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. And Nickerson, apparently... This is or, Judge Gary Nickerson. Judge Gary Nickerson, judge who was a judge. He has yep. since retired. Uh, not according to his own will. He turned 70 and he was forced to retire. Yep. Um, so Nickerson said he was going to take that up and apparently he never did and um, Secadelli did not object to the final jury verdict form. So his argument was that because the jury would have to, the way that the jury verdict slips were labeled, it was guilty, not guilty, or not guilty, comma, um, no criminal responsibility no or something yeah. along those lines. And his argument was the jury cannot be forced into this dichotomy of, of choosing not guilty because Secadelli's argument wasn't that his client was not guilty. Secadelli's argument was that his client had done these acts, but that he was not criminally responsible. Responsible. Yeah. So then the second issue that came up was he uh, um, he had also requested that, and he titled the motion something about like insane, but not guilty or guilty, but insane. And he wanted the instead of the slips to read though you know the yes or no answers. You know, I think one was has they have they proven the case? If if you answer yes, then go to two. Two is uh, if they've done this answer yes and then go to three and it ends Choose up being your own a, adventure sort of yes thing, yeah. but it ends up being a you know either guilty or not guilty criminal responsibility um the second one was to say to change the not guilty criminal responsibility to reading guilty comma but lacks criminal responsibility so that the okay. jury could still find that lawyer was guilty but that he was not criminally responsible and okay. this is this is really important because Two, depending on who you you know who you talk to, um, either two or three of the experts all thought that he did not have criminal responsibility. One expert did think he had he had criminal responsibility, yep. but the expert who definitively said he has criminal responsibility also never interviewed him. Only looked at the tape at mm -hmm. the the stuff, um, the the trial documents, and so there was this real issue of you know all of these comp not competency but criminal responsibility reports, and it was I think. Um, DA Michael O'Keefe was quoted at the time as saying that it was quote battle of the experts unquote. Yep, yep. So yep, and so that again that those experts became important in that uh, whether or not he was criminally responsible uh, uh, for his acts became important, and the wording in those verdict slips, uh, according to uh, again the appeals uh, attorney now, is important because the jury might have looked at it differently as exactly. they were looking at that wording, um, and then so that was that was uh, that was what he was looking at. Again, this is a case where literally Adrian Lawyer videotaped what he was doing with GoPros that were attached or put on trees, and uh, the you know the details are horrific, but it was something where he clearly uh, you know from the get go. Uh, basically was saying he did it. His Segadelli, the attorney at the time, wasn't arguing that he didn't. It really came down to the level of responsibility for his acts and whether he was not responsible because of some mental issue. And and I think I didn't get into this in my story, but I mean, you know, the flip side of the, you know, Segadelli's argument partially on the, you know, 
the problem with a jury finding him not guilty is is you know there's this guilty and not guilty have this emotional impact, especially when they've heard that he's done these awful, yeah. awful things. I mean, he and he mouthed the words guilty to the the jury yeah. when when everybody's backs were turned, which was caught by a video camera that yeah. was in the yeah. in the courtroom, and so you know there's this sort of you know, part of the problem with not guilty is you assume that that just means he walks free, which is not true. Yeah. More than likely, he would end up being in a medical institution for the rest of his life because being found not guilty by reason of a criminal response, lack of criminal responsibility usually means, especially if you commit a murder, that you will be institutionalized yeah, for the rest of your life yep. because you are a danger to others. Yep. Yep. So, so, so again, just that not guilty versus guilty and the jury looking at that and saying, I, I have a hard time, you know, saying not guilty because of a lack of criminal yeah. responsibility because I know he's guilty. guilty. Uh, yeah, so, so how can I yeah, choose yeah. not guilty criminal responsibility? So, so what happens now? This is, these are briefs that have been filed uh, in this appeal. It so just goes through the, the process. One, the of this one, one brief has been filed. Yep. Um, and we actually have a copy on our website. It was not available yeah. on the court's website, and so we have put the full brief on our website. And actually, the as Meg, um, the other editor, pointed out, Meg Burton pointed out, you know, the 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 brief is actually, if you if you're not up to speed on the case, you can also go there, and if you want to read 40 pages yep. about all of the evidence and all the things that were going through his head and everything that happened, the brief is a really, really good history of what happened and the experts yep. and all of the things that were going on in the background of his mind that, that led up to these incidents. These are, these, are, these are documents that, again, are written by judges that are, are done in as you know thorough but succinct a way as possible, um, and they have some time to do them, again, versus our, our stories are very good, but we're doing them on a daily basis, and a yeah. lot of times it's 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 much more difficult to take that very uh, detailed well, stand. And, and if and if we wanted to take that detailed stand, we could fill the entire paper with a narrative of everything yep, that happened. Exactly. So that's what his appellate attorney did do. Yep. Um, the so this is called the oh, blue. Again, this was the appellate. Attorney. Yeah. Sorry, so the appellate attorney he has filed the quote blue brief unquote, and um, the Commonwealth or the prosecutor's office now has to file its red brief. And I don't remember the date, but I want to say it's it's multiple, multiple, if not six months away that they, they have, have time to, to respond. They have a long time yeah, to respond, yeah. um, and, and rightfully so. And then usually after they respond, um, the appellate attorney will file his response to their response, his reply to their response, mm -hmm. and then possibly the Commonwealth will file one more, and then he could file one more if he wanted to. And okay. then more than likely the SJC will have it for... Um, a hearing and then after the hearing then they'll issue their opinion and then it'll go on from there yeah and i'm sorry this is the uh, uh sjc or because this is automatically it's, it's appealed automatic to the, appeals to the court. yep um so so a lot uh to to look back on there and and some to look forward it's a it's a steep hill to overturn uh, a a lower course decision in any case but there are times that it happens. Well, and, and, again, and to be, be clear, interesting not... to have another trial because, again, he is considered to have done these uh, crimes, and so it would be go back to the matter of whether he's criminally responsible or not. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, thank you, Willer. Again, we'll continue to follow that along. Um, uh, looking ahead, uh, we have a story coming up about something that's uh, uh, always uh, uh, a talk on uh, Cape Cod, which is the use of herbicides uh, to knock down vegetation under utility rights away. Every year, uh, the utility Eversource, in this case, has to come up with a plan. Uh, our reporter, Christine Legere, has been looking at that plan and looking at the towns on the Cape. 
uh, where this uh, spraying of herbicides is planned. Opponents do not like it. Um, the uh, utility says that it's necessary in order to uh, ensure reliable service. Uh, that story will be in, in uh, the paper tomorrow or the next day. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Appreciate it. Uh, feel free to tell your friends, share the link to uh, uh, CCT Live. Feel free to reach out to any of us, uh, uh, Wheeler um, uh, or any of the other reporters. All our emails are available at capecodtimes.com. We're in news starts on Cape Cod. Uh, thanks a lot, Wheeler. Appreciate it. Um, and uh, until next week, good morning and good luck. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.